Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Christian music not played on Christian radio is alive and well and wonderful. Like jazz in popular culture, traditional hymns and anthems may no longer be the dominant music form in Christian churches in the United States, but the composition of new hymns and anthems is thriving. Today, we will get to listen to the fruit of a wonderful partnership between a lyricist and a musician. Dr. Mary Louise Mel Bringle, who is a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Brevard College, is the lyricist. And Sally Ann Morris, who is musician in residence at Wake Forest University Divinity School, is the musician. They are here to talk about the breadth and depth of their work together, and we get the pleasure of hearing just a small portion of their long and productive partnership. Well, welcome, Sally and Mel. Thank you for being with me. I'm grateful for this. Uh, Why don't we begin uh, by letting each of you take a little bit of time to tell some of your own journey, uh, spiritual journey, uh, that has led you to where we are now. Who wants to go first? Oh, David, I'll go first. This is Sally. Thank you for inviting Mel and me to this uh, podcast. And thank you for the question. While I have always said, even from my younger years, that my faith is important to me, and there have been so many individuals that I have loved and admired who have deeply influenced my beliefs. I do confess that my faith was not always a highly visible or even active one, even in within my own daily daily life. But I have always understood that the gifts and talents that I've been given as a musician, my God-given gifts and talents, were intended for me to use. And I've always used those gifts and talents, and quite often, and most often, I've used them in church. I've always had a great love for and am heavily influenced by the what I would consider the great hymns and anthems of the church going back centuries, and that includes to the Renaissance, the the Middle Ages Renaissance, and certainly through the works of of Bach and Mozart, and and going up to the 20th and even now into the, the 21st century. I continue to be influenced by just about every composer whose work I've ever encountered. I've written music since my teenage years, and I've never stopped. But in 1990, I was asked to compose a hymn tune for a Winston-Salem congregation. I live in Winston-Salem, by the way. And this church was celebrating their 100th anniversary in 1990. Having sung hymns all of my life, I gladly accepted that invitation, and I composed the hymn tune. And I realized instantly that that demonstrated to me the purpose of that particular God-given talent. And that 
became my duty and my privilege and my joy to to explore writing hymn tunes and songs and to give those back to God in the form of of creating music for others to sing to God's praise. For me, that was a profound revelation. And here I am 32 years later, um, still reveling in that particular revelation. <laughs> and in those 32 years since, I have had the privilege of, of getting to um, learn and to explore and to meet and to work with many of the world's finest hymn writers of today. And um, among them and at the top of that list is, is Mel Bringle. So what a gracious segue. Uh, <laughs> without Sally Ann Morris, I would not be a hymn text writer. And I'll, I'll tell that story later. But to talk about spiritual journey, that when I'm asked that question, I often think about the ending of a Robert Frost poem where he says, I have a lover's quarrel with the world. And throughout my life, I've had sort of a lover's quarrel with the church. I grew up in the church. I grew up singing in primary choirs and elementary school choirs and high school choirs. Uh, I dearly loved my choir director. He has been, was, one of the most formative influences of my life of anyone I have ever known. But long about high school, I started having some critical questions the way high school students do, the way my college students now do about how one reconciles the problem of suffering in the world with the existence of a good and loving God. And I entered into the quarrel phase of my lover's quarrel with the church. But when I was in college, I encountered religious studies as a discipline that embraced those questions and gave me ways to think about God that in ways that could reconcile my beliefs with my experiences of the world. So I made a turn back toward the church and then as much with Sally, made an even deeper turn into my own faith and spirituality when I discovered this uh, unexpected passion for writing hymn texts. And Sally truly is the person most responsible for my taking that inkling of an idea of something I might want to do and turning it into a vocation. And the collaboration that she and I have had over the past how long has it been, Sally? 22 years. 22 years. Yeah, has been w one of the richest collaborations of my personal life, but also of my faith life. Well, the collaboration has been wonderful uh, and amazing. Uh, and, I've, and, and what we're going to listen to uh, throughout this episode uh, relates uh, especially to, like you say, congregational song. Right. That's right. Yes. Uh, I mean, you, you've collaborated on some anthems. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's correct. In fact, one of the first things that we collaborated on actually was an anthem text. But I think every text that we have worked on is arranged in such a way that it should be not a soloistic piece, but is intended to be the people's song. 
Okay. And, I mean, not just like a choir song either, not because some songs are, are complicated enough that only a choir can sing, uh, you know, that it's not good for, uh, for average voices. Uh, that that's very true. And, and, um, I think Mel, you're correct that the very first piece we wrote together would fall into that category that it's really intended as a choir anthem and not as a, it's not a hymn at all. Um, but um, everything we've written since has has been intended for congregations. Well, no, you know, because both of you are part of the Hymn Society, and and uh, and and of course Brian Haynes part of that uh, with uh, uh, the Center for Congregational Singing. And um, uh, I know that there's a, a strong emphasis, uh, you know, Michael Hahn and and folks like that, you know, put the strong emphasis on saying that that uh, worship should be about uh the congregation uh singing um can can you all talk a little bit more about that your own uh being drawn to that dimension well i think i mean sally and and the best hymn composers are those who can write a melody that is instantly engaging and accessible without being simplistic or trite. So, I mean, one of the tests of a good hymn tune is that untrained singers can pick it up quickly. One of the tests of a good hymn text is that people can read it and instantly understand what it's saying. So we don't aim for high art poetry, we aim for accessible poetry that helps to render scripture and theology in ways that ordinary people can can embrace as their own expression of faith. I think both Sally and I are interested in writing things that that people will find memorable and touching to them emotionally. And although choirs are marvelous, and I've sung in choirs for much of my life, the most important choir of the church is the congregation. So giving congregations things to sing, I think, is a tremendous gift that people like Sally have. Sally, I, I, you know, being an instrumental musician myself, uh, more in background than I I connect with, with, with what you do. Uh, admire both of you in, in both your capacity, because I've never been a good wordsmith. And so, you know, Mel, I, I, I'm, I'm envious of that capacity, just in the fact that you you're able to do it. And then Mel, uh, you, you know, you, you transcend, I mean, uh, Sally, you transcend, uh, my own musicianship. And, and so I, I've, I've always loved, uh, you know, the, the composition process, you know, hearing about that and how folks, uh, go about that. And so one of the things I, before we start listening to the music, um, uh, that I wondered, Sally, um, when, when it comes to composing, uh, and let me see if I know how to say this, right. Um, do you think or in here in terms of, of words or instrumental, does that make sense Do you, when, when, when you're thinking about songs, um, does it first come to you instrumentally and then you match them with words or do you actually think through the words? David, I actually work both ways. Um, there are, um, when I first began writing hymn tunes, it was always 
I wrote hymns to a set of pre-existing words. The very first hymn tune I composed in 1990 for that church in Winston-Salem had a new set of words also written for the church's celebration. So I had a set of words to use to inspire my tune. It wasn't long, though, after I began writing tunes more frequently because it be I became obsessed with doing it that I found myself composing tunes just out of thin air that did not have words to them. And yet they ended up having the form of a hymn that, that you could, they were metered or regular enough that hymn-styled hymn stanzas, uh, verses and stanzas could be put to them. Um, some of them were a little bit more complex in that they were irregular. They didn't have quite the same format as a as some of our old standard hymns, but they were nevertheless able to have hymns, hymn words put with them. And I began writing those down and sending them to hymn writers and asking them to listen to these tunes and to put words to them that the tune might inspire. And so that's what's going you're we're going to explore some of those today in that um, some of the songs that we have selected for today's program will have um, tunes that came first and then some that words came first. So I'm able to do it in both in in in, in both on both sides of that coin. Okay. Well, we're going to listen to six of the songs, hopefully, uh, that you all have have uh, done together. And we're going to kind of go in, in a little bit uh, through the church year uh, in this. And so we're beginning with uh, the people who walked in darkness, uh, which is an Advent thing, and it's from Isaiah. Uh, so um, let's, let's um, talk about that uh, song first. How did this collaboration come together on this one? Let me say a word about that and then, and then hand off to Sally. So as she said, we deliberately picked for this conversation with you a variety of pieces, some which began when Sally had written a tune and needed words, some which began when I had written words and needed a tune, and then this first piece, which is a hybrid. So this piece began with Sally, who wrote a refrain and then sent it to me and said, I need verses to go with this refrain. So she's going to talk a little bit about the refrain. And then I think you have a version of the refrain only, which we can listen to. And then I can talk about the stanzas that I wrote, and then we can listen to the stanzas being sung. So that Sally can talk first about this refrain that, that came to her. <laughs> it, it just came to me. <laughs> um, the, um, in in two thousand seven or eight, I worked in a um, a congregation that had a both a traditional service and a more contemporary service, as it was called at the at the time. And um, I had a, um, a a praise band of musicians at the uh, contemporary service who um, were very fine musicians, 
we had a service of lessons and carols, the, the nine lessons and carols that uh, originated in King's College, uh, Cambridge, um, in the, uh, around the First World War, um, that the fourth lesson is the story, is the Isaiah story in which the people who walked in darkness, the Isaiah 9 passage, is, one of, is part of that, um, is, is that lesson. And I wanted a, a, um, a congregational setting of that text that could utilize my traditional choir and also the praise band instruments. And I created a refrain um, using the text, his name is wonderful, counselor, almighty God, father forever, prince of peace. So I, um, was always a big fan of, um, I, I can never sing that passage without thinking of Handel's Messiah, uh, wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father. But I want, because we were not using Messiah in my lessons and carols, I wanted this other uh, type of, of uh, energy and, and a type of instrumentation that could combine four-part harmony, which my piece my refrain does and instrumental uh, and a strong rhythm and beat um, and so I composed that melody and harmony and added those words to it and I sent it to Mel and at that point I said I need you please to look at all the other, the verses to that Isaiah passage and write me the verses that go with this refrain. So we're going to listen to just the refrain part first, right. correct? That's okay. correct. Okay, so let's do that. So if you if you hear that refrain, what you hear, what I heard in that refrain was a very strong, we call it in the poetry biz, dactylic foot. So a dactyl is a beat that goes strong, weak, weak, just like your finger has three knuckles, a long one and two short ones. So a dactylic beat is dum bum 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 bum. His name is wonderful counselor, almighty God, father forever prince of peace. So I got that rhythm in my head and wanted to keep that dactylic feel to the stanzas, which was pretty easy to do because Isaiah does the work for me. So <laughs> the people who walked in darkness awakened to see a great light. The people who dwelt in the land of the shadow rise to a star shining bright. So so I got that sort of rhythmic feel based on the refrain music that Sally had written. And then I took the Isaiah text and came up with this somewhat unusual 8, 8, 12, 7 line. And in hymn writing, we talk about syllable counts. So the first line, the people who walked in darkness has eight syllables. 
Awaken to see a great light is eight syllables. The people who dwelt in the land of the shadow is 12 syllables. And my original version went right back to an eight syllable line. And Sally said, no, people need to be able to take a break. They need a breath. And so I shortened, I took the first syllable off the last line of the stanza, which means it lands on that accent. The people who dwelt in the land of the shadow rise to a star shining bright. His name is Wonderful Counselor. So I think we can listen to a choir singing maybe three of the stanzas of this text. And let's do that. I do want to say that the because Isaiah 9 is such a rich passage, my text actually has five stanzas to it, of which the recording just does three. But I'm really glad it does that third stanza because that's Sally's and my favorite that has the yoke of despair and bondage, the chains and the slave master's rod are shattered and scattered like dust on a windstorm loosed by the justice of God. And we both are very happy with shattered and scattered like dust on a windstorm. It is so, you can see it when you, while you sing it, you just see it happening 
as you as those words go by. And you stick pretty closely to the text, though, throughout. I do. It's interesting. Uh, I, I had to find some euphemistic ways to talk about plundering after warfare, right? Because the original Isaiah has something about uh, you have multiplied the nation. They rejoice with you as people exult when dividing plunder. And I didn't really want to talk about dividing plunder in a contemporary Advent text. So I talked about God's people are blessed with the harvest of victory, gift from a bountiful hand. But otherwise, yes, it does hew very closely to Isaiah. Many people write metric versions of the Psalms. I have far preferred in my hymn writing career to write metric versions of Isaiah. Okay. Well, our next song is Jesus Comes. This is one that began with the music. So Sally can tell you about where the music came from. Um, this one came from the year 2009. And I, all I can re really recall about it is that it was, I think, Thanksgiving weekend. So it was late in the year, um, probably toward the last weekend in, in November. And this is one of those situations where a tune just began rolling around in my, in my head. And I sat down and this particular tune emerged. Um, it's a, it is a, um, a, a very uh, lyric tune. It is a um, melancholy tune, um, um, a warm tune. Um, and what I about it was that there's, you, you, you managed to extend it a little bit beyond where you think the music's going to go. You think, okay, we're coming to a cadence, and yet then, then no, you, you kind of extend it a little bit before you kind of get to the, to the, you know, and I, I really enjoyed that. I mean, it's a wonderful, beautiful tune. Thank you. Thank you. So um, as was my, uh, I, I was in a, um, uh, a real habit of sending these tunes to, uh, tunes like this to Mel, um, had sent her a packet of tunes um, earlier that year. And, and um, so I, sent her this one and the rest as they say is history so i think we have a piano only version so your listeners david can hear what it was that i was hearing if we could listen to that accompaniment only for 10th night which came to be the name of the tune and then i'll say something about how it inspired the text that follows okay so let's listen to that And, and and you're going to read the words for this. I, I will, but we will also hear the words for this one song. But I do want to read it so people can 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 hear the text uh, fully. 
So Sally did not say this was to be a Christmas hymn. She just sent me the music and I played it over and over on the piano to get a feel for it and loved it. It, it. As you say, it's an exquisite tune. And I ended up being home alone at Christmas because I had been planning to drive to Greensboro to be with my mother, but there was a snowfall unexpectedly and it wasn't safe to drive. So I was in the house by myself, snowbound on Christmas day, playing Sally's tune, which I adored. And these words came to me. In a far off place, Jesus comes to earth. Sheep and cattle grace the sight. As the angel songs begin like the whisper of the wind, nature's hope awakes again. Jesus comes. For the poor in heart, Jesus comes to earth. Humble shepherds start the news. For each homeless infant born, for the meek and those who mourn, for the weary and the worn, Jesus comes. In our deepest night, Jesus comes to earth, radiant star to light our way. Summer's heat, or winter's chill, with a warm and loving will to a world that needs him still, Jesus comes. That, that text, I think, was inspired by that, the three-note ending, which, which immediately began singing in my head, Jesus comes. And I, I was thinking about this text just in watching the news, thinking about those children in Ukraine being born in subway stations to try to escape bombing, and thinking about homeless infants born, the meek and those who mourn, the weary and the worn, a world that needs him still. And so this, although it's a Christmas text, it's a prayer for the healing of the world. And it's wonderful. Thank you. Um, now, just from my own poor Baptist, not liturgical experience, um, you you titled it Tenth Night of the Tune. Talk about that a little bit. Well, we all know that there are the 12 days of Christmas. Right. And January 3rd is the 10th day of Christmas. And just a few days, literally, after Mel wrote this piece, I had already arranged to have Mel and her mother and several of my music friends come to my home for an after Christmas party because, you know, as all most of us were church musicians, you can't party on Christmas, but you have to wait until after Christmas for the party. So we had a big party at my home and uh, at which Mel and her mom came and were the honored guests and special guests. And we sang this piece um, and we, we had a whole evening of, of singing, but we sang this piece and to honor the, the 10th day of Christmas, uh, Mel suggested that I might want to name this the tune name Tenth Night, and it stuck. That's a great tune name. 
and I, I thought I, I thought maybe it might be related to that, but I didn't know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it's uh, uh, still a little bit adventy. Uh, you know, that it might, might be related to the 10th day of Advent. (laughs) Okay. Our next song then. And we do have a full version of this one for people to hear as well. There is an, there is an instrumental version that also has the sung lyrics and a lovely little flute piece that Sally has arranged. So I hope violin violin piece, right? Okay. So we're going to hear the whole song now. So let's listen to it. Wow. Utterly beautiful. Thank you. Any other thoughts on this piece? 
Well, just that when I was writing this, I was also thinking about the problem of, I'll use a fancy word for it, hemispherism, that most of our Christmas imagery is very Northern hemisphere. So we talk about, we think about white Christmas and snow and cold, but if you don't live in the Northern hemisphere, that's not your experience of Christmas. And that's one reason I have in that last stanza, summer's heat or winter's chill, because I wanted to be attuned to the fact that there are some people who celebrate Christmas in summer's heat. Mm -hmm. In shorts. Yes, well, right. and, and it, it, again, it shows kind of Northern privilege. Uh, right, exactly. We expect, we expect the rest of the world to, to envision Christmas the way we do. Right. Well, so our next song then is We Will Bless You, God of Strength and Might, uh, which is based on Psalm 104. This is another one that began tune first, so I'll let Sally talk about the tune. Somewhere around 2008 or seven or eight, I got in the habit of sending Mel a new tune on her birthday, which is july 31st and i sent My grandson's her, birthday all right so i would send her i i did that for several years but in 2012 i missed it by a day i i just i don't know what happened to me but i sent her the tune the next day and this is a rollicking tune full of high energy, lots of lots of rhythm, lots of syncopation. But I also was, uh, uh, and I was excited about the tune, but I was um, uh, embarrassed that I had missed her birthday. So um, tunes have their own name. And so the name of this tune is A Day Late. <laughs> And I think once again, we have just an instrumental version of Sally playing this tune so that your listeners can hear what I was hearing when the text came to me. So let's listen to that if we can. Okay. I love that. That's just so good. Thank you. Okay. So thoughts on this one. One of my prevailing concerns as a hymn text writer is to attend to the voices of people long silenced, as we say in one of our creeds in the Presbyterian Church USA. And I'm particularly interested in the voices of creatures in hymns that 
call us to be attentive to the natural world. And the joyousness and ebullience of Sally's tune made me think of Psalm 104, which is this marvelous, marvelous expression of God's love for all creation and all creatures. So I went to Psalm 104 to find words. And I must confess, one passage of Psalm 104 that I particularly like is about God making oil to make our faces shine and wine to gladden our hearts. So the text emerged as, We will bless you, God of strength and might. We will praise your holy name. You have clothed yourself in robes of light and you ride on wings of flame. You make springs to gush from rolling hills. With your oil, our faces shine. Every beast and bird, your bounty fills, and you gladden our hearts with wine. Yes, you gladden our hearts with wine. And the text goes on to celebrate God's love for the creatures. By your power, the fir trees reach the sky for the stork to build her nest. Sun and moon and rhythm set and rise, making times for work and rest. In your watered land, the grasses grow and your hungry flocks are fed. By your grace, we reap the fields we sow and delight in our daily bread. Yes, delight in our daily bread. Every creature given breath now sings all our lives with joys abound. For you bless the world with wondrous things and all earth is holy ground. And then back to that first refrain. You make springs to gush from rolling hills. With your oil, our faces shine. Every beast and bird, your bounty fills. And you gladden our hearts with wine. Yes, you gladden our hearts with wine. Well, to me, there seems to be throughout the song a kind of a transition from praise to communion. Excellent point. You, you absolutely nailed it. So talk about that. Well, we have, it has been used as a communion text, in fact. Uh, it's a, a wonderful, I mean, if you can remember that little melody, it's a wonderful tune to sort of dance your way up to the altar to receive the elements. And so there is a deliberate uh, shift from gladdening our hearts with wine in stanza one to delighting in our daily bread in stanza two, which does not have to be the bread and wine of communion, but certainly can be. Well, one of my, my own favorite hymns, uh, excuse me, Psalms, uh, is 130. And in part because of that repetition that's unusual in the Psalms of, you know, more than those who wait for the morning, mm -hmm. more than those who wait for the morning. And yet that seems to be kind of a common uh, element in both your writing and your music. Because uh, this one, as you say, the, you, you repeat the last two lines. I, I, one of the things that I have learned, the more I have written is how to write less. Because my, the first texts that I wrote were very, very wordy. And another composer with whom I worked a lot, William Rowan, kept pushing me to simplify and simplify and to work at creating refrains. A refrain is a very difficult thing to write because it has to be words that are worth saying over and over and over again. So as I have evolved as a text writer, I have tried to make more judicious use of repetition because I think 
simpler words that are repeated more often tend to be more memorable for people. The the melody that I gave Mel on this um, tune, also the last, it has, the, the final line is a repetition of the line right before it, musically. And so in many ways, it almost, it's like a built-in refrain. Um, and so it made it very easy for Mel to simplify her text by not having to create another whole line, but to, but to repeat in a, and, and, and actually it strengthens the, the, the ending to, to repeat that line. Um, so it was, um, I think it, it strengthened it for me musically to do it and for her to use the same words just reinforces the, the, that strong ending. I will also say that in my first version of this text, I had a slightly different refrain for the third stanza. And both Sally and Eric Wall talked me out of that and said, no, it would really be much better simply to repeat the refrain from stanza one. And I do think they're right. It's a more successful hymn for being less complicated. So our next song is So Great a Love. This one began with the words. So if, if we're thinking about this sort of tour of our hymnody as a trip through the liturgical year, we can think about beginning with Advent and moving to Christmas and then into ordinary time and the season of creation. Certainly Psalm 104 takes us into the season of creation, talking about beasts and birds filled by God's bounty. Of late, I have really been preoccupied with issues of how we incorporate non-human animals into our hymnody. Not just our praise of creation, but also our eschatological hope. What do we really think becomes of other than human creatures in God's new creation? Is it a new heaven and a new earth with just people? That seems to me rather a barren scene. And so the more I've thought about that and the more I've studied animal theology, the more I have become convinced that there is a place for our beloved creatures in the life everlasting, as well as a place for our beloved human companions. So I wrote this hymn text to talk about the possibility of a life after death for other than human creatures. And I, I again, with judicious repetition, I have begun each stanza with so great a love starting first with the love of God that created creatures in the first place and called them good, and then the love that the creatures demonstrate in their praise to God, which we find throughout the scriptures, then the great love that we learn from the creatures of our lives, often finding a less judgmental companionship in an other-than-human creature, a cat or a dog or some other family pet, and ending with the hope rather than solid pronouncement that if God's great love can create animals in the first place, certainly we can trust to God's great love to redeem them in God's own fashion. So let me recite the text and then Sally, I sent it to Sally because I needed a tune for it and she can talk about the tune that she created. So it goes like this. So great a love drew light from the dark 
breathed into green each meadow and wood, filled empty space with life and with song, called every creature good. So great a love these creatures return, praising the one who lures them from dust. Each day a gift of wonder and breath, blessings received in trust. So great a love we learn from their lives, love free of judgment, lavishly dared, wordless devotion, simple and pure, deep joys and sorrows shared. So great a love enfolds them in death, holds them in memory, comforts our grief, till new creation springs from the word, bidding our wild belief. Now, before we talk about the music, I wanted to kind of talk about the words a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm glad you touched on uh, before your your it, there's a there's a a a, a progression uh, through this song. Like say the, the first of God's love, uh, then the creature's love, then our own discipleship and learning about love, uh, and then that that uh, coming to be uh, in in you know like say returning to God. Exactly. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I love that transition. Uh, that um, and I, and I, I wondered about uh, the wild belief. Right. So, so whenever we talk about life after death, we are talking well beyond what we can know. We have, as C.S. Lewis says, that's where we pass over the rim of this world. No one's eyes can see very far. So. I can at least affirm that nothing good is ever lost. And so God holds in memory what process theology calls objective immortality, all who have ever lived. So I know that God holds creatures in memory. And I know that God comforts our grief over losing our companion animals. I do not know, but I trust that God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, which if you if you hear, you even hear a little resonance of morning has broken like the first morning, right? So you hear Blackbird is singing, praise for them springing fresh from the word. And they're in that line is my till new creation springs from the word. So this kind of a paralleling of Eleanor Fargen's creation text with my new creation text. And we don't know what God will do with a new creation, but it bids us to dare to believe something wild and extravagant that God's love for all creatures from the amoeba to the great ape with us somewhere in the middle will, will resurrect us all into the fullness of life for which we were originally intended. Sally, talk about the music. David, it, it's my job as a hymn writer, as, a, as the hymn composer, to make sure that whatever I write does not get in the way of the words. When I compose a tune on my own and send it to Mel, 
I have written just a tune that has no words attached to it or even or in in most cases does not have us even a does I don't have a season or a subject or anything about it there's been some exceptions to that where I've said I think this might be an Easter piece or something like that but when I receive a text like this I have to make sure that whatever I do only accompanies this the, the words, it provides a means for the piece to be sung. It captures the, it captures the, I hope it captures the intent and the character of the piece. In this case, something very poignant, very sweet, um, very thoughtful, um, very profound, but I can't let the tune over uh, mask those things. And so I felt like it needed to be a simple tune. Um, if you were to see the accompaniment, you would see that it's just, I have very few um, harmony notes. It's mostly just the melody and a corresponding um, arpeggios in the, in the, in the left hand. Um, it is not complex. Um, and um, so when I, uh, Mel's text actually, it was a little bit hard for me to make sure that I kept it as, as uh, simple and clean and clear as, as, as I could. And I hope I've done it justice. And she has done a beautiful, beautiful piece with it. So we're going to listen to that. Yes. So let's listen to it. really nice final responses to the song well I, I there is a link between this song and the one that we're going to do next there's several actually that they are both pieces about resurrection and and new life they are both in their own ways uh, reminiscent of Romans 8 the one we're getting ready to look at deals very specifically with Romans 8, 35 through 39. The so great a love is much more the all creation is groaning, awaiting its redemption, adoption as, as God's beloved. So there's a connection between the two. 
And there's also a cat story involved with this next piece, which uh, Sally and I can tell you about. But Sally may want to tell you first about the uh, the music for what became shell tribulation or distress. So this is this we're moving we're transitioning. We are to transitioning to a our last next to the last yeah. piece. Yeah, shell tribulation or distress. Okay. In, I'm going to say 2006, um, I had written two or three tunes um, or a, a, a handful of tunes that needed um, texts. And um, I made arrangements to visit with Mel in, at her home um, in Etowah. And uh, I live in Winston, and she's in Etowah, and so um, I, it, it's about a, what, two and a half, three-hour yeah. drive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I made a, a, arrangements to go visit her, and um, she has a piano. Mel's a wonderful pianist. She can she she can play these songs that I that I have uh, sent to her, um, and she greeted me at the door, and I could tell immediately that she was um, had been she was very teary. And I knew something was wrong. And she told me that her beloved cat, Cinda was the cat's name, um, was, uh, who was quite old, uh, was near death, and the vet was on the way to put the cat down. And I felt like I was very much intruding and I offered to just turn right around and drive back home and she invited me and insisted that I come in and I played these tunes for her. When I got to this particular one, um, she had an immediate response to a passage in, in a musical passage I had written in the, in the tune and that passage uh, I'll let her tell you what that passage was, but it prompted the 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 rest of this um, of this um, of, of the text of this piece. Yes. So so in fact, this is one of those providential stories where this was a tune that Sally had written for another text as part of a competition, and she presented it to me as her loser tune because it did not win the competition. And I have subsequently decided that it was providential that the tune not win that competition so that I could have it because it was a tune I really needed. So, so as the story goes, uh, the cat Cinder was in fact to be euthanized shortly after Sally left. But when Sally left, the cat who had, who had, had a seizure, right? Do you want to right. And I, I had, I wanted to pay my respects to the cat. So I, Mel let me into the room with the cat and I, I just went over and just looked at the cat and, and was appropriately sad. And then I, then I made my exit. Right. And then, and then the cat who had had a seizure and had been paralyzed in her hind legs and could not move, eat, drink, or use the litter, got up from the chair, got down, went and used the litter box, went into the kitchen, had food to drink. The vet came to the house and we said, well, thank you very much for coming. We will pay you, but we don't need you today. So it was this, this wonderful resurrection story by, 
by the the miraculous healing touch of of Sally Morris. So oh. at any rate, the, and that the cat went on to live for a few more months, year. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so the cat resurrected. So, but but I had been in deep distress over this cat, and as Sally said, there was a passage in her original tune that had a four-note figure that repeated itself exactly. She's gone on to, to modify it, but at the time I heard it, it was four identical notes that repeated in the middle of the tune. And that led me to think, what are four syllables that I would want to hear repeated? And those syllables were, not even death. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Not even death. And that immediately took me to Romans 8, which I grew up knowing in the King James Version. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? And those syllables, shall tribulation or distress, fit perfectly. So within a matter of probably less than an hour, I had written words to this tune because they primarily came straight out of Paul. Shall tribulation or distress, shall persecution, fire or sword, or any peril of this world, or even death, or even death, shall any power of earth or heaven divide us from your love? Oh Christ. And for this one, we actually have a version with a choir singing the whole thing. So I won't need to, to read the words. We can hear them in the version that Sally has sent you to play. Okay. Let's listen to it.
Well, again, this reminds me of the, the Psalm 130, that repetition, uh, that, that's such a powerful device uh, in that. Um, and I noticed that in um, you, you use the word divide us from death in the first two, and then you mm-hmm. use the word part us from death in the last. Is there a significance to that? Just syllabic. Right. So the the first two stanzas are shall any power of earth or heaven divide us. And then in the last stanza, it's not any power of earth or heaven can. And once I have the can, then I I no longer have the two syllables for divide. So once it's not any power of earth or heaven can, I needed a one syllable word. So it became can part us from your love. Our last song. Is a delightful song. <laughs> and quite different from all the others that we've listened to so far. <laughs> it, it, going it, peace, going love, benediction song. So talk about that one. It really is uh, um, uh, uh, different from anything we've listened to already in this uh, in the, in this program. Um, this was another. This was the birthday tune. This was Mel's birthday tune for two thousand and nine. Um, and, uh, so I wrote it on July 31st. I had a little bit of, um, uh, I, I, it wasn't a rush though, because I knew she was out of the country on her birthday. And so I was able to send it to her a little bit later, but it was not a day late. It was, it was absolutely on her birthday that I wrote the piece. Um, we got together later that fall at First Pres in Asheville. And uh, our friend Eric Wall, who was the musician there at the time, hosted us. And we had an afternoon of playing through a lot of these um, um, wordless tunes. And um, Go in Peace, Go in Love uh, was one of those tunes. Um, As we sang through and hummed it, as we were just singing along with with, uh, the music notes that were written down, we all agreed that it sounded like something that should be a sending out song it had um and so mel's job was to create something to use at the end of end of worship and i mean this does harken back to some of the things that sally said about having worked at a church where there was a contemporary service and she did work with a contemporary band and and some of that feel that you get in that refrain for the uh, the people who walked in darkness is picked up even more so rhythmically uh, in this particular piece. And Sally, I think, said something to Eric and me like that she just envisioned people singing it once. And Eric and I said, no, no, people are going to want to sing this. They're not going to want to stop. This needs to repeat. This needs to go over and over and over again. And it just called for very, very simple words. Go in peace, go in love, go to seek, go to serve, go in hope to work and pray. And God goes with you all the way. Very simple text. But Sally's words really make it groove. (laughs) Well, let's listen to it. Let's do.
Now that is a way to send a congregation out. <laughs> that will keep them humming throughout the and, week for sure. And dancing. Yes. And dancing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, now, Sally, I mean, again, musicians tend to be able to um, do well in one genre. Um, not a lot of musicians, uh, are able to, to, to weave in and out. You're either good at classical or you're good at jazz. You're good at, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but how do you learn different styles as a musician? How do you get to where you're, you're versatile? Uh, you know, because like I say, you're rooted in, in the classical stuff and the things that you do. Uh, but, but in working with the contemporary, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a stylistic change. Certainly I grew up in, in, I, I grew up in classical music and as, and classically trained as a, as a pianist, classically trained in the choral rep, great choral repertoire, classically trained in terms of my church going, um, but I was also a child of the 60s and 70s and 80s where I was deeply influenced by rock and roll. And um, and so I'm 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 one of those people that has I'm I'm influenced by just about anything that I hear. And so my I've been exposed to so many now styles and genres and types of of music not just in the pop world, but also in the church world, where I have, through the Hymn Society, for example, have been exposed to music from literally all over the globe um, and of all the different uh, genres of of worship music, uh, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And that ultimately creeps into my writing. Um, And so that's where I'm just as likely and able and, and, and find it as satisfying and fun to write a song like Go In Peace, Go In Love as I am to write a simple and poignant tune like the so, for So Great A Love and, and a classically um, influenced piece like Shall Tribulation or Distress. Thank you for asking. Well, this has been uh, an amazing thing. I thank you, and I know the people of God thank you both uh, for allowing God to work in, with, and through you personally uh, and in this wonderful partnership uh, that you have created. You have blessed us all in what you do, uh, and I thank you uh, for that. And thank you for being with us. Uh, Thank you for sharing uh, what you've done together. Yeah, we we thank the Holy Spirit for the gifts that we have been blessed to share. And we thank you, David, for the opportunity to spend time with you and with each other and with your listeners. This has been a great joy. It's just been a joy and, and privilege. Thank you. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Sally and Mel's music used in this episode is published by GIA Publications and is used by permission. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album, 
and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.